0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with the Honorable Dr. Tammy Bonsanto. Tammy is the former Assistant Secretary for Accountability and Whistleblower Protection at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Before her appointment, Tammy served as a Congressional Healthcare Investigator for the House's Committee on Veterans Affairs. Tammy also served as a hospital corpsman in the U.S. Navy after her family immigrated from Trinidad while she was in high school. Upon separation from the military, she became a registered nurse and earned her doctor of nursing practice and has worked in various roles within our healthcare system.
1: And coming from a small village in the islands, my first time ever on an airplane was coming to America, and then the second time was going to boot camp. You know, I turned 18 in October and I was off to the Navy.
0: We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Yeah, there's okay. no video. Yeah, Ben, you ha- by the time you hear this Ben, it will be like a minute after I say it. <laughs> so, you're on like a super lag. Just text me uh if anything comes up. He's on vacation. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, a little mini mini escape from the city. Yeah, we we don't post video. Sorry, we should have like m- mentioned that. Uh, but we don't post video, and then we clean up audio.
1: Oh, seriously? So we- you guys are like, really? I had to get up and put up makeup for this? You should have told me yesterday. I would have still not. Do- <laughs> I'm just messing with you.
0: <laughs> All right. I'm was, I was about to feel bad
1: for
0: you. No. <laughs> no, I was just messing with you. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's good. So thanks for coming back on. We had like a 30-minute uh, uh, call yesterday just to introduce ourselves, and... I mean, I feel like we could have recorded portions of that as some stuff that we wanted to get into anyway. Yeah, your headline is assistant secretary at the VA in charge of um, whistleblower protection and transparency. Did I get that about right. Mm, so a little bit.
1: So um, I'm the okay. former assistant secretary for accountability and whistleblower protection. Um, it's a okay. new position that was created in law in the VA accountability. Whistleblower Protection Act of 2017, I think, yes. So the law created the position, and I did go through the Senate confirmation process in 2018 after my nomination to be confirmed for the position.
0: Yeah, that was, uh, I saw a picture of you at the, it's like a C SPAN picture, you know, the one. Where everyone who goes in front of uh, in front of Congress has a picture of them sitting at a desk with a bunch of other people behind them. Yes, and they're answering questions. Yeah, yeah. You like a like a Supreme Court justice that we always see them on TV mm-hmm. when they go through it. What was that like?
1: Um, you know, it was so I actually worked for for Congress for a number of years on the U.S. House Representative Committee for Veteran Affairs, and. I was on the other side of of that table, you know, writing questions for members and briefing members and preparing members of Congress for those types of hearings. And, you know, going through the confirmation process and being on the other side of the table and having to answer those questions, knowing very well some of the questions that may be asked and some of the tough things that I'll have to answer for, you know, given the state of where, where the office was at the time. It was... Intimidating. I mean, I, I could brief members and I could prepare you to sit sit before Congress, but, but getting myself ready to do that and preparing for it and knowing that each member has about two minutes to ask a question and you have to give your response in, in that time. It took a lot of preparation. Um, I'm not an attorney. I'm a registered nurse by trade. So Trying to, to not getting into the weeds on things was kind of tough for me, too. But it, it was very intimidating at, at first, even though I've prepared for it. I've done it. I've other individuals on how to testify in front of Congress. Um, it was unique going through it myself.
0: Do they get like personal with the questions or keep it to like your professional history and all that?
1: Um, It depends. So the the scope of the questions you get asked when you testify
0: in front of Congress
1: is dependent upon the topic. So when you do your confirmation process, when you go through the confirmation process, once you're nominated, um, they ask questions about your background, um, your training, your, you know, your thoughts, your strategy for when you're you're in the role. What you know, how are you going to measure your outcomes? So it depends on the member. It depends on their interests. Um, since it was VA, uh, you know, most members have, have veterans in, in their district, some more than others. So it depends on what are the issues in their districts. And those are the questions they'll ask. In the other congressional hearings you saw me testify in, those were very focused on the office. So after I was in place, we a- we actually had a pretty b- bad IG report come out about the Office of Accountability um, and whistleblower Protection at VA. So those questions that got asked was very specific to the IG report, where I was in the planning process to improve the office, and then, you know, how would I measure outcomes? So preparing for a hearing, you can get asked many different things. Um, it's okay, I think, to say, hey, I don't know that, but I'll get back to you on it. You know, I'll take that question for the record. So it, it was very much, um, it depends on the topic and the scope, and normally you get that in advance before you sit for a congressional
0: hearing. Oh, nice. They give you like a little uh, agenda.
1: Um, Yes. And you do get to meet with the members. Um, It's the option of the administration. If you, you know, you meet with the members on the committee and you have a conversation with them. So sometimes in those initial briefings, you'll get asked the tough questions and they'll say, hey, I'll be asking you that question again. You know, you'll you'll get a heads up. And and that just depends on the member depends sometimes on the politics um the party but for the most part va is very bipartisan so everyone was very supportive going through that process for me
0: yeah it, i i guess we would hope that it's one of the most bipartisan parts of government yeah. at least
1: um <laughs> but... being a veteran myself and my husband being a combat veteran he he was in the army i was in the navy you know um, we both utilize VA to go to school um, through the GI Bill benefits, and and for healthcare too. Mostly for him, uh, I do have to say, VA was very bipartisan. You know, both both um, sides of the aisle. When I worked in the committee, uh, we worked really closely on legislation. We were divided on certain things, but those things never impacted. You know, what we really need is is better policies. You know, under previous administration, there was an increased um, funding to VA. Everyone supported it. Um, the need for increased accountability and transparency, both sides of the, side of the aisle um, supported that. So for the most part, in my experience, VA has been bipartisan and the need for that accountability aspect is, you know, being the second largest government entity, it, it was necessary to have more accountability in that in that space.
0: I want to get into a lot more of that VA stuff a little later, but maybe we could rewind the tape and just uh, go back to like your your beginning service or even before that. You moved to this country as a teenager mm-hmm. and enlisted out of high school. So, can you give us a little more about like early life and and how you got here and what made you want to join?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'm hoping you know after our conversation yesterday, if you're looking for that you know, that story to inspire others to to serve and, and continue to serve. I hope I can touch more people and, and, and help people understand the importance of it and what motivates me. Um, I grew up in Trinidad um, and Tobago. It's a small island, like about seven or eight miles off the coast of Venezuela. And I, I migrated, I, my upbringing was in a little village called Piparo. Um, it was, you know, a tiny village that really made it to the map in 97 when we had a volcano erupted which misplaced a lot of my family. I was even temporarily misplaced for a little while too. It was a mud volcano and it made had like news around the world because it was inactive for a very long time. And I grew up without electricity or running water, without access to basic these basic services that, you know, I think now I do have to say, yeah. Sometimes I take for granted, um, and I try not to. I try to appreciate those things. But you know, access to clean running water and electricity. We I studied by a lamp, and you know, we didn't have like modern plumbing and and all of those things in our home. Um, you, I, I think you've been overseas, Matt, a few times. You, you probably have seen right. these 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 the, these instances in in third world countries. And my family migrated to the U.S. in '98. I started high school um, in in the U.S. and we moved to Riverside, New Jersey, and I graduated from uh, Riverside in 2001. And September 4th, 2001, I joined the Navy. And my decision to join the Navy was my parents, you know, basically having a conversation saying, look, we're in this country, I'm the eldest of four children, and my parents couldn't afford college. I didn't know anything about student loans. I was a green card recipient. We were told if, you know, coming into this country, if you're ever dependent upon the government, you're going to be deported. So, you know, that was a very scary thought after waiting in line to get a card to come to America. And then the thought of ever being dependent on the government for anything, you're going to get deported. And whether or not it was true at the time, I don't know. I was young. I just knew that my parents were like, you need to figure out a way to go to college. And um, that's when I started at a college fear at a high school. I, I learned about the Navy. They had a big sign. They said, you know, go to college for free. I'm like, okay, what do I need to do? Sign, sign here. Yes, yeah, sign here. And that's what I did, you know? Um, and I left. And coming from a small village in the islands, my first time ever on an airplane was coming to America. And then the second time was going to boot camp. It was intimidating, scary. I was, you know, I turned 18 in October and I was off to the Navy. And it was really, really intimidating flying into O'Hara International Airport and having to read all these different signs and figure out where am I going to go in this waiting section to, to get on a bus um, to, to head to Great Lakes, Illinois. So it was, it was an experience in itself. And then 9-11 happened. And I remember sitting in boot camp, you know, seven days in and here I am, just turned 18 and I'm being told, hey, we're going to go to war. The country is getting attacked. And and I was scared. You know, everyone was in tears. My family was in Jersey. I had family in New York and, and I didn't know what was happening on the East Coast. And I think that changed service quite a bit. It changed the, you know, what how I felt towards it. Um, for me, it was... It, it, it gave me a deeper sense of, oh, my God, I am in this country, and I'm here to serve, and, and I'm going to do that. And I stayed in until 2006, and uh, I was honorably discharged in '06 and I decided, like okay, it's time. It's time for me to decide, am I going to stay in 20 or, or leave? And I, and I told you yesterday, my decision was that in the military, for me, I, I needed more knowledge. I was enlisted. I needed, I joined for edu- my education and that was my priority. So I left service and it was a risk. Transitioning was hard. I left in 06 and it took me about a year to get a job. Um, with all the experience I had, um, I was told, hey, you don't have a degree, you know? Um, <laughs> and that was something that stuck with me. So it took me about a year to get a job. And when I did get a job, I had a harder time transitioning. So that's, that's my backstory, who I am. Um, I love what I do. Um, I'm still very passionate about the veterans. I worked for a clinic when I first left the military, running a practice. And then I worked, I finished my, my RN degree in 2010 at Jefferson um, College of Nursing in Philadelphia, went back to, to school and continued my education, um, I, most recently in 2018, finished my doctoral degree in nursing with a focus in community systems administration. My doctoral project was focused on examining non-VA nurses' capacity to deliver culturally competent healthcare to service members and their families. And that's my education route. From a work perspective, I worked for the Army Reserves doing case management in the Northeast region. Then I came to Capitol Hill in 2015, right after the Phoenix scandal broke uh, with the veterans' wait time. The committee was hiring, the House Veteran Affairs Committee was looking for someone with expertise in healthcare and another expert for contracting. Well, I took on the role to do oversight into VA's operation in 2015. And from there, I worked very closely with the um, VA's Office of Inspector General, the Government Accountability Office and various VSOs, Veteran Service Organization to identify a lot of the issues we, that was highlighted in many congressional hearings uh, as it relates to HR, sterile processing, prescription drug drug monitoring programs, a lot of these things that were very clinical, the committee became very focused as we were finding issues because I had the expertise in the background to identify those issues and question VA on it. Um, I worked very closely with a number of whistleblowers across the country, um, bringing forth a lot of the issues that were... Some thought were just local to them, but from a national level, I saw trends that a lot of these problems were broader than what, what we thought they, they were originally. And in 2018, I was asked to take on this role at VA, and I was confirmed in Jan of 2019. And I resigned in my position on January 20th of this year, of 2021.
0: Fantastic recap. We <laughs> covered like 20 years. Uh, here, yes, um, in twenty minutes. I, yeah, I still, I still want to because I'm interested in you had a you had a volcano go off at home, but but also like there's so there's so much I'm interested in in how you you know how you grew up, how you came here. You said the first time you're on a plane was coming to America. Mm-hmm. Like how. How did your family apply, and and like, you know, what did what did your family do back home, and and did you already have extended family here? Like, what is that? How do you actually go from Trinidad to to the U.S.?
1: Oh, so that's a really good question. So when we think about it, and we think about immigration, remember I'm talking about the mid 90s. Um, I came here in 98, so things may have changed, yeah. but my experience and what we went through. My um my father's mother was um a citizen of the US for years, over thirty something years. She migrated in the sixties to America and she came here as an immigrant, worked, um, worked her way in, in you know, doing medial jobs and my father's mother said all of his siblings, my, my dad's siblings, were in the U.S. at the time, some in Canada. And his mom said, hey, you got to bring the kids out, you know, from from Trinidad. We had a lot of issues with drugs, you know, being so close to, to Venezuela and South America. There was a lot of issues with, with um, illegal drugs in, in the Caribbean at the time, too. So it's just the opportunities to come here was better. So we, our applic- my application process was through sponsorship. My grandmother actually sponsored my father and his family. And that took about nearly three years. You actually wow. have to go through... I remember going through the application process and we were applying for visas. And even though we were going through that sponsorship, we still had to wait for the visa. And I remember... At the end of it, in Trinidad, right before we came, we had to get, um, you know, TB TB shots and and all these different immunizations, even though we had them. And I remember telling my mom as a teenager, I said, Oh my God, how many more needles do we have to get before we come to this country? And then when we came here, they were asking us like how many more shots. So by the time I hit the military, I was well immunized. for service. <laughs> yeah. Um But, and those things I look back on and I reflect um, about, you know, coming to this country and, and that, 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 that want and that need for, you wanting to to have the opportunities. And when we came, my mom was a homemaker. My dad actually worked in the oil fields in Trinidad and he was gone for the most part, um, most of the times, but we were around my, my parents' family, which were, they were farmers. We lived in a village, so we did farming. I raised goats and chickens and I always tell my kids, you know, part of getting up in the morning was taking care of the, the goats and the chickens before we went to school And ensuring that they were fed. And then in the evening, getting your homework done before the sunset, because you're looking at the sunlight, you don't have electricity, and taking care of your animals. So that was kind of my upbringing was just focused on really hard work. I saw what hardship was. And part of who I am as a person and and how I was raised was that the only way to get out of that was to become educated. And in Trinidad at the time, there weren't a lot of opportunities for women. Most of the women who were professionals that I knew were either teachers or nurses. They didn't get into other fields. So for me, coming to America was this, oh my God, I can do anything. I can choose my profession. I can, you know, travel. I can, I and the Navy was like, oh my God, you get to move different places and they pay for you to move. You get a salary and health benefits. Oh yeah. So it, it was, you know, to me, the, the focus has always been on my education. So Getting raised in that environment, knowing what hard work is, knowing that, you know, at any given time you can lose everything. That's material. My focus became family and my education. And it's always been the core of who I am as a person.
0: What's it like? So did you go to school in Spanish or English?
1: In English. Um, Trinidad okay. was actually yes. Trinidad was uh, very much um, ran English rule for for my, okay. my most of my lifetime. Um, 1969 I think is when we gained independence in Trinidad, and 70, 1972 around that time we became a republic. But it was very much um, English. We went through. I was raised in an English system. My um, my religious religious home. I was raised as a Hindu. But in school, I went to school and was raised in a pre, you know educated in a Presbyterian system. So went to church, hmm. sang hymns and stuff. But at home, I was raised as as a Hindu, um, and and that's quite common in the in the islands at the time. Um, there were some schools that are religious focused, like Hindu schools, Muslim schools, Catholic schools, and in my village, the the Presbyterian church you know, ran the school. So we I, I went to, to the Presbyterian school. The times have changed They've become more modern, um, for the most part in the Caribbean, but during my time, that's what, that's my, my upbringing.
0: Oh, cool. This is probably stuff I should read about before the episode, but I, I know like, uh, it's incredibly close to Venezuela. Mm-hmm. You know, you said like six or seven miles off the coast. And then I see that the, the, the Trinidad and uh, Little League World Series. Actually, that's where I <laughs> with the other with the other uh, kids from the Caribbean countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, my bad. I thought uh, maybe it was uh, Spanish speaking too, but apparently not.
1: No, um, English is the is the main language. Uh, we do have now. There's more um, tourism coming in, so there are people that speak Spanish. At home, through religious instruction, you learn Hindi, um, you learn Arabic, just through your religious instruction. And some schools do have that also. But growing up in the Caribbean and being so open to different cultures, um, different people, so accepting. The way that the, the Caribbean, the, the people who migrated there, there were similar to America. We had the Native Americans, Native um people of the islands they were the caribs and the arawaks those were the tribes one was very warlike one was not then we had the 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 slave trade which came under the spanish rule we had um you know the africans coming over to to trinidad they worked in the sugar cane they worked in you know just doing labor like tobacco and a lot of labor labor work and then the the Indians, the East East Indians came when the Brits took over. Um, they bought the indentured laborers from India to the Caribbean. So, if you know, looking back, I think it was more than two hundred years ago. The East my 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 ancestors immigrated, you know, came through the slave trade from from India to to Trinidad. Wow.
0: That's such a like an incredibly diverse and and rich history. Yeah. Um for, it is. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is but but part of knowing who you are um and seeing how your culture uh influences you as a person as you grow in your career um and you become educated is absolutely important uh i think yeah. and i i like educating people on 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 diversity and that part of it because growing up in the caribbean well i didn't experience you know anything like racism until I came to America. And and it became like, now we're having a lot more conversations. But to me, a person was a person. I mean, I was very accepting. Um, My husband is, um, my children are biracial. My husband is white. I'm Indian. And my family accepts him. You know, I love him. And, you know, it's just, to me i don't see the skin color i see individual people as people and i accept everyone for who they are uh, i think that's the most important thing
0: yeah i think we have a a, a hyper focus right now in, in the us but uh i almost want to just keep talking about trinidad because it sounds so cool but we have to <laughs> talk about the rest of your story uh so when you see this join the Navy, go to college for free and travel and get paid to do it. It sounds like your parents were pretty supportive, and it, it sounds like the the idea at home was go out and make a life for yourself.
1: Yes. The idea at home was very much that. I think my dad's concept was, you know, hey, I got you to America. Now, what you're going to do, right? There's no excuse hmm. for
0: failure. <laughs> I mean. Okay that was very american <laughs> uh way to look at it
1: and it's a very um my background is indian it's a very <laughs> thing to do too so um okay. I, he he was like we, i got you here and i would never I'd never forget the story he's always he always tell when we came to america my dad had 250 dollars us in his pocket that's all he had in his pocket when we came here and uh, he always tells that story, and I remember saying, us saying, my my youngest brother saying he was hungry, and my dad went to get a hot dog, and you know the airport, it's like food is ridiculously expensive, right, and we flew into Miami the first time, when we touched down in Miami, and my dad looked at the prices, and he was like, oh my god, I have $250, I have four kids and my wife, and that's, you know, that's a lot of money, it was like, four dollars or something like that for a hot dog and I remember my mom saying oh I packed roti and my mom packed like roti and curry (laughs) <laughs> in the airplane so to carry on we're all sitting all four little kids you know and we're sitting there eating in in Miami airport all the kids are eating pizzas and hot dogs but we pulled out some roti from a bag and we were sitting in the airport eating a curry and roti and it was it was so typical and I chuckled at that moment because you know it's it's something I do now like I you know I calculate and I, I appreciate when my kids eat out I always remember those moments of How my parents thought that, you know, $4 for a hot dog was so expensive. And I spend $4 on a drink and not even think twice about it, you know. And uh, that experience was was so unique. And my mom, her first job when we came here was cleaning in a bakery. And through high school, when I went through high school and through all my siblings, uh, my mom worked at nights in a bakery cleaning. Um, My dad couldn't get a job. Um, When he did get a job, he started off cleaning at this, small little oil plant in Philadelphia um, and they didn't know his background in in oil processing. And eventually one of the chemists started having a conversation with with him and realized, oh my God, this guy knows the oils, he knows fats, he knows how to process oil. And eventually um, as the years went by, you know, he became the plant manager like in two years. um, Once they realized he went from, you know, shoveling up and cleaning around the plant, they realize he knows what he was talking about, and they gave him a job running the plant. Um, and and a lot of I think a lot of immigrants go through that. We, I think, the military helped me get a voice. I was very quiet. I never said much. Um, the mm-hmm. military helped me come out of that shell. I think as motivated as I was to be successful, I was still very much submissive and non questioning. Um, and. And the military, as I went on in my military career, I was telling you yesterday, I started wanting to ask more questions. And when I started asking those questions, it wasn't the right time or the right thing to do because I was enlisted. So you just follow orders. And I was like, I didn't come to America just to follow orders. I came here to make a life.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think the Navy is is a lot stricter on uh, rank and especially officer enlisted, junior, senior enlisted than the army is, but they're both, uh, you know, they could take getting used to or not.
1: Or not. Right. It it was, um, I've worked around the army for quite a few years and I saw the same dynamics. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know how me as a person, you know, maybe it was the way I asked the question or how I said it or culturally, I think I had to adapt to, for example, sarcasm. I never got sarcasm, right? Like in my culture in Trinidad, it's like you say what you say, saying. You say how you feel feeling. That's it. And I didn't really understand sarcasm. So I think sometimes I may have come across reflecting now as uh, sarcastic when in reality, I was just really honestly asking the question. <laughs> um, so that, that adapting to the American culture and understanding it a little bit more um, was tough in that transition for me.
0: You came in as a Navy corpsman, which is the mm-hmm. Navy term for a medic.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, as an E1.
0: Was it like a conversation with your recruiter or did you know that you wanted to get into healthcare later on? Cause you did.
1: Coming out of high school, I, oh, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to go to medical school. I was very Lisa focused on going to medical school. Um, so Knowing that I wanted to go to college, um, I didn't know about GRTC for the Navy and all these other different health programs that they had. I didn't know any of those those things. And I spoke to the recruiter and the recruiter informed me like, hey, this is a good start. You get some hands-on experience. You work as a corpsman in the Navy. You work very closely with the doctors You, you know, you can also become an independent duty corpsman where you're pretty much running your own little clinic um, if if you choose to do so, or you can serve with the Marines. Um, I never served with the Marines. I don't think I would survive that shift, even if they tried to to bleed through that. Um, But, you know, um, I give credit to the women that serve with the Marines. Boy, because they're there, that's a tough bunch. Um, And, you know, I did reflect very carefully coming out of the military. I worked closely with a lot of physicians and to be honest with you, I did not, when I saw how the physicians worked, it was healthcare was, was becoming at the time in the early 2000s, much more regulated, I should say, right. Um, with the introduction of the electronic health records in the, the military at the time, the altar records in the early two thousand. I was very much involved with that. And I was starting to see that some of the bureaucracy and the regulation, um, And how closely monitored through the regulatory bodies that that healthcare had them. I didn't think going to school for those many years to become a physician and then just really not get to enjoy treating a patient, but more focused on your documentation and the billing and and the coding of it and and the finance side of it, the business side of healthcare, I should say, is, is what I saw. I didn't think it was for me. And nursing seemed to have given me what I wanted to really have—to be allowed to treat the patients without the bureaucracy. Because I was on the front lines, I was involved with the patients, I was understanding. I actually had the time, and I could say, looking back now in my career as a nurse, I actually had the time to get to know my patients, to know Mm -hmm. what was truly impacting them, and I. And for me, in my opinion, I don't think as think as a physician, you get that time. I just don't believe you do. I think you, yeah. it's in your heart's in the right place. You want to do the right things, but it's healthcare is so highly regulated and and so business oriented that you're measuring time with your patients against that dollar. Sometimes, you know what I mean. Like it's like fifteen minutes for an appointment versus as a nurse, I could spend twenty five minutes sitting there talking to you and having that time getting to know you and knowing everything that's happening with you more so than a physician could. So and and that's why I think nursing was better for me because I got to do what I really enjoyed which was helping people and yeah. serving.
0: I had surgery recently and uh, my doctor's great, but what I what s- stood out to me on the day that I had surgery was, you know, the the administrative person brought me in, gave me my clothes to change in, gave me a little questionnaire. The nurse mm-hmm, came yeah. in and put the IV in uh, and and asked me some more questions. The junior doctor came in and did the little pre-op survey, you know, like marking that it's this side of the body and not the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, then, and then my doctor came in and all he did was pull up a chair and like sit back and just shoot it with me for 15 minutes. And I was like, "Don't we have surgery today?" He goes, "Oh yeah, we, yeah, we'll go, we'll go in surgery." And I was like, "Man, that's cool because that's not uh, that's not what you get out of every doctor." But also, I see the other side is is if you're a doctor, you have to you have to manage your time very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, you know, I've seen you know getting to spend more time with uh, with nurses, you know, in the past too. Um, so I can totally see where you're coming from there.
1: And I I do, I've seen both sides of it. I've seen the, um, I should say, older doctors in the sense of doctors who weren't used to working electronic health records. For example, the first clinic I worked in when I came out of the military, they were transitioning to the EHR, the electronic health record, and the doctors still had charts. And one of the physicians, he just didn't want to use it. I mean, we were part of a large university health system. And he said, I spend more time looking at the screen than I do talking to my patients and, you know, and and we're seeing that shift in healthcare. um, And I think it's critical for us to acknowledge the impact that has on people's lives. I mean, when you're sick, you want someone to hear, hear you. You want some, you want to know someone is there and someone is listening and attentive. And um, I can say similar to if we're having a conversation right now and I'm on my cell phone texting or, you know, on social media, you may get the impression that I'm not paying attention to you. I'm hearing you, but that's, that's not what you want. You want my undivided attention, you know, and especially when you, someone is sick or, or, or have a serious health concern, they just want to know someone is listening. And sometimes that the, the EHR, mm may become a barrier to, to giving, that people, giving people that feeling of, hey, someone actually cares. And I don't know if there are studies, I haven't looked at it to see if someone ever looked at the impact it may have on, on outcomes of how people feel the satisfaction of their visits. But it's something that we, we have to consider and, and think about too um, as healthcare evolves, especially through COVID, you've seen um, we've leaned highly on you know, um, technology to help us through this pandemic, whether it be us, we're doing a podcast right now virtually, um, and or even doing healthcare visits, it's changed. But one thing I can say is now when your doctor is on the computer, you're actually seeing your doctor, you know, you're not sitting in a room um where your doctor's typing and you're talking in the background, you know, they're we're in the visit, they're they're communicating through the the video camera. So whether or not people feel more satisfied in that environment, I couldn't tell you, but those are things to consider as we come out of this this, this pandemic and, and health care changes um, and evolves.
0: Well, I just know a little bit from hearing about you know behavioral economics study that says doctors that spend more time being personable and talking to their patients get sued less frequently. Mm-hmm. So maybe there is a bit of a, you know maybe if you're a nice – nice person as a doctor you get a better premium on your uh, on your malpractice insurance who knows
1: <laughs> who knows patient satisfaction but that's what everyone you know if, if you're attentive and you're listening to people um especially when they're sick they just want to know someone's there i think people are very understanding in in that sense and communication is key in in that instance
0: yeah even to the point where if you think that you you know didn't get the best care possible. As long as you think that the person actually cares for you, mm-hmm. you're willing to work with them or, yep. or, or, or keep coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so, there's so much of that where, you know, you think it surface at face value, you would just want like the most highly educated or the right. or the person who's got the, you know, most stellar credentials. Or really, you just want someone who cares about you. Yeah
1: who's invested you know. in your well-being, I should say. That's absolutely right. We care and and invested in you being better. And I think for me, um, as a nurse and and who I am as a person and coming into this space this, this political space too in Washington, you know, when I took this job, I left my family in Jersey and my husband said give it a give it a year. See if you like it. And I told him I said this is where I want to be. It's what I need to do. We talk about healthcare as a whole and and the practice of it, but a lot of what shapes healthcare is policy. And one thing I've learned on Capitol Hill is not everyone writing healthcare policy has worked in healthcare or has a background Mm. in healthcare, right? They are political you know, background in um, uh, maybe a bachelor's degree in politics or, or history or something. And and they're just familiar with healthcare policies, but I could look at healthcare policy and say, "Hey, that policy, as well as Congress intends it to be executed." These are the implications it might have in rural America. This is the implication it might have in the in, inner city, in, in Philadelphia or in DC. Um, and to really speak to that and, and give, you know bring that, that frontline expertise into policy has really transformed a lot of the work that's, that's been done in PA. Um, and I think it's critical that more clinicians get involved in policy work and not be intimidated by it. I think for it's it's a very intimidating thing to come into um, and a space to be in. But one thing I, I always say is we have we we nurses have we are the largest group of healthcare workers across the country and our every vote counts. So talk to your representatives, you know, and educate them on what's happening in your district because each district is unique and we can't you know something that that we can a policy that that can fix a problem in one district may cause a problem or disruption in another district and those things we need to think through before we make national policies on on pertaining to healthcare regulation
0: yeah i think i heard somewhere recently that nurses make up uh, or there are between 3 and 4 million nurses in the us which if that's accurate would be like one out of every 100 people which is a pretty big coalition
1: it is. Yes, it is. And, um, and and if you go back into the history of nursing, um, it seems, you know, and you look at, at what Florence Nightingale did, she was like the start, she started nursing. And, and I speak to a lot of college students, undergrad students about this. And I said, you know, one thing she was really good at, she was finding problems in the Crimean War, right? She was, infection rates and, and she had a lot of data and statistics. And, and she. The way she utilized that data is through politics. She was very politically astute. She went through and educated politicians and the military leaders on what was happening using data. And you can't argue with the facts. And that's critical. And for some reason, um, and, and I don't know what it is. I, I I'm not a historian. But for some reason, in nursing, we just kind of lost our voice over the decades. And we were seen as, you know, the doctors the number one and I just want a doctor and then and there's a nurse. And, and we, it, there was this tier structure. And I, and, and for me, I have worked very hard to change that conversation and saying, no, I'm a nurse and I deserve an equal seat at that board table um, and that leadership table to have a voice for the nurses, especially given the fact that we're we spend most of our time with the patients we're there are more nurses than any other clinician you know, in, in the country, and, and we deserve to have a voice, and, and our concerns needs needs to be taken into consideration when making decisions about healthcare policy, because it's more than just nursing policy. It's about healthcare as a whole.
0: You said, too, uh, yesterday when we met up that when you got out, you were 23, and someone told you you were too assertive. Yeah. So can you talk about your experience from from the Navy and, and what work was like there to then getting out. I think you said you were working at a clinic, but also, I think, going to school at the same time. And this initial shift, even even at that young age?
1: Yes. So so one, before I get into that, I do have to say, Matt, yesterday when I was telling you the story, I, I chuckled that, you know, we're talking about transition. And if I had stayed in the military, um, this year would have been my Twenty years, right? 20 years to retirement. And, and I would have been looking at that retirement and I had to make a decision, um, at 23 years, 22 years old to, to say, am I going to stay or am I going to go? And I decided to leave and, and I'm here. But in that transition from 2006, when I left the military, um, it took me a year to get my first job. Um, I was in school at the time and in my first, I was running, um, uh, an internal medicine practice I was a practice manager there. And uh, we had about five doctors on staff and I went from, you know, being in the Navy, I worked with more men. So I was very assertive and very serious. And, um, and, you know, if I wanted to be heard, I, I needed to keep up. I felt that, that, you know, the way I spoke was very stern. Um, so coming out um, into the healthcare space in the civilian sector my first job and my first exposure was running this clinic. My, my peers in, in the clinic I was working, the, that group, it changed. I went from a very male-dominant environment to a lot, working with a lot more women. And one of the complaints that was against me within the first few months on board was that I was very um, assertive. And my manager, she was very understanding. Um, she didn't have a military background, but she called me in. I was 23 years old. And she said, hey, you know, you're really assertive. You should smile a little bit more. I said, smile? Do you want me to do a job, get the job done or smile and be nice? Like, am I not being nice <laughs> enough? I said, I'm giving orders like you're asking me to do, um, you know, tracking. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing in the job. But now reflecting on on that, now that I understand what she was speaking about, um, I didn't have the soft skills she wanted me to have. And Mm -hmm. she took the time, I think, to educate me. I went to, she said, you know what, you're doing a great job, but you can't be so assertive. You just need to smile a little bit more. I'm like, okay. This is going to be great. Let me, let me figure out how to do this. But she just didn't tell me that and expect me to go out and figure it out. And and I think those experiences has, is what what has groomed me into the leader that I am today. Um, she basically said, I'm going to send you just some customer service training." And, and, you know, giving me the skills to to manage people, like the soft skills I needed at that age to, to, to manage. And uh, I mean, I had the expertise to run the clinic, I knew what I was doing, you know, uh, and, and I even merged two practices together. So I had everything that I needed to do the job, it's just those soft skills were lacking. And she invested the time to, to really mentor me and, and help me come along in in that space, um, shifting, even though it was healthcare from the military to healthcare in the civilian sector, the culture was two different cultures. The the mission was two different missions, like the military, you know, the healthcare system is very focused on mission readiness, although they, they care for dependents, but the, the main focus is mission readiness. Civilian sector is more wellness, well-being, population health, you know, sometimes very reactive to, to, to healthcare concerns. Um, you know, managing chronic diseases. So it was two different cultures. So even though you're delivering healthcare, the the way you manage, the way you you lead in that in the spaces were were very very different in my experience. So it was tough, but I had a manager who invested in in doing in, in helping me get those skills I needed, and at the same time, I was also continuing education and going to night school to get my prereqs done for nursing, which was to me, coming out of the military, that resiliency, the military teaches you. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of times, and, and I've seen this with soldiers, they underestimate the power of that, that resiliency training that you get. And I think that helped me quite a bit transitioning from active duty to civilian world. I can... I was taking four classes a semester, working full-time and raising my daughter. I had my first daughter when I was um, 19, actually 20 years old. I was a single mom for a little bit and married, divorced, and then was a single mom when I left the military. And it was that resiliency the military teaches us. If you really tap into that after service, it helps you. It really does. And it gives you strength sometimes when you're just, Discouraged altogether. It really does give you. It gave me the strength to say, "Hey, I can do this." I made it through Active Duty. I made it through boot camp. Um, there's no option to fail at this point, right? I, I have all the tools in, the, in that toolbox. I just need to reflect on it and get those tools and, and put them to use.
0: That's incredible. And then at some point, you continue on to get your doctor nursing. So as if as if you didn't have enough on your <laughs> plate already. So that we probably should talk about what it looks like when you graduate in 2010 and then, and and then, you know, just keeping the, keeping the train moving until moving on to your doctorate. You you said you worked in army reserve case management. Mm -hmm. And then are you still doing your doctorate in parallel with that?
1: Yes. So actually I had left my job in 2008 to finish nursing school because it was a full-time program that I get, I, I went into. So after a year on the job, from leaving the military, not getting a job, finding a job, I made the decision then to say, okay, this, the nursing program that I was going into was um, a fast-paced program. It was two years full time, and there was no way I could, you know, do a full-time job and keep up with with that because it was a day program. It was there was no night school for for that BSN program, the bachelor's program that okay. I was in. So I left that job um, and I graduated in 2010 and I started when I graduated, um, I got a job with Philadelphia Housing Authority, setting up an adult daycare center. So I was working in the inner city of Philadelphia. Then I got pregnant with twins in 2011. I got married in 20, 2009 and in 2011 um, I had twin twin girls. And being the nurse that I am, I'm like, mm, I was in bed rest. So I, I left my job. Um, to take care of my, my children. They were both preemies. And I told my husband, I'll do this. For, um, I'm going to quit my job for a year and left nursing altogether and moved back closer to home in New Jersey and was raising my girls. And then after a year, that's when I got a job with the Army Reserves doing case management as a contractor. That job introduced me to a lot of policy um, because it was the the program was through law I had to understand the laws that created the program and the policies that was coming out of Washington to drive the program and the changes that was necessary and I had to coordinate care for soldiers between Department of Defense VA and the civilian sector I already had quite a bit not quite a lot of knowledge about um, DoD and the civilian sector and healthcare. Cause I worked in both sectors, but I never worked in the VA space. So I, I understood going into, it was a learning experience, you know, understanding how VA delivered care, what services. And I was a veteran. I didn't know anything about VA in 2012. Like I transitioned in 2006 and all I knew was, Hey, I can use, get my home loan and my GI bill benefits. I didn't know about filing for disability. I didn't know any of these things going in, into that role. And, um, as I was working more closely with the soldiers on understanding some of the concerns they were raising about, you know, accessing VA services, I started understanding the bureaucracy of the healthcare system more because we were dealing with three different entities, right? The civilian entities want certain things a certain way and the DoD and then VA. So around that time in 2014, I realized that, you know, um, I had told myself that when my girls were about two years old, that I wanted to go back to school. And my, my husband was very much supportive. He knew that I was definitely not one to to stay at home or, or stay idle. Um, He said, Hey, if that's what you want to do, go for it. And I started my master's degree. And uh, once I started my master's in nursing, I said, you know, I, I had two paths. I could do a clinical path or I could do an administrative path. And I chose as much as I love nursing, um, I chose the administrative path in nursing because I understood that from my experience, there needs to be a voice around the table when it comes to nursing leadership, um, someone who understands the the bureaucracy, someone who understands the problems that, that was happening. Um, every role that I've ever given, uh, whether it be clinical or frontline, I've always doesn't matter how hard I've tried to get away from it, that administrative role, I always get pulled back into it. And probably it's because um, I can't keep my mouth shut when I see things that are broken. And <laughs> it could be a fault of my own, but I still feel there are so many people out there without a voice. And if I have the opportunity to be that voice for them, why not do it? So I made the decision in 2014 to start my master's degree and uh, continued on. And in 2017, I finished up. Um. I started at Rutgers in, in New Jersey, and then in 2015, I switched over back to my alum, which is Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, because their program uh, uh, in community systems administration was more focused on on policy and healthcare um, than any other program in nursing that I found. I made the decision once I started my master's to not stop. Mm-hmm. So it was back-to-back, C- continued to go to school, um while my twins were younger, um, a lot of people often ask, like, "How can you go to school when your kids are younger?" And I do have to say, my girls are going to be ten this year. Um, my eldest daughter is go- she just she turned seventeen. She's going to be eighteen, getting ready to go to college. And I do have to say, when my kids were younger, it was easier going to school. Now they seem to be more demanding. <laughs> Now and I think now they realize a little bit more that, hey, mom's distracted, I can get away with stuff. When they were younger, they would play and and they're not seeing that distraction. So they, you know, the the I'm gonna listen to mommy. Now they're starting to push the limit. So now I, I and my husband and I often chuckle. We feel like they need more attention and, and more guidance now than when they were younger. When they were younger they would just Ugh they're independent, but they listened and they, they paid attention. They weren't getting in trouble. Now they push the limits. Like really, I'm at home teleworking, you know, through COVID. And I was seeing, I was like, Oh my God, one of my girls, for example, she was on YouTube during school and I just lost it. I was like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, you know, so they're starting to push the limits. So I think it's, it was easier for me when my kids were younger going to school than it would be now if I had to, to go to school now and pay attention to them. It, it would be a lot
0: tougher. I can't even imagine the stuff I would have tried to get away with. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, and and that's exactly. Um, I do have to say, my 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 oldest daughter. I'm absolutely proud of her. You know, she most recently got a new car, and she's driving, and and she's a successful. She plays soccer in New Jersey, varsity soccer, varsity basketball. She's an honor student um, in our high school, so she's excelling in in every way which way you could think about. And I've been divorced now for years, and you know, she never used that as an excuse for for saying, oh well my parents are divorced, I'm not gonna be successful. You know, she she moved, she was very motivated to to, to own her own destiny. Um when mm-hmm. I moved to Maryland, she did not want to move and and she made the decision to stay in Jersey. And I say your grades start dropping, you're moving. Um so she stayed with her dad in Jersey and I was okay with that. And she was, you know, at, at a very young age, very mature enough to realize what she wanted. And being a parent, I had to let go and understand and trust her decision with the understanding that if, if she doesn't succeed and, and, and stay focused on what's important, which is her education, she's going to have to move down here with me. And she shocked me. She was like, oh, I'm not doing it. I mean, she is my daughter. So I guess I expected that, but she was determined to, I said, you only have one job and that's, that's improving your grades and staying educated until so you could get that next job in that next phase. You, you have no options at this, at this point in time. So, and, and my other two girls are, are being uh, at the exact same way. So I have three daughters. So I think for me it's important to keep setting that example for them and showing them that, you know, there are no excuses. You, you, you determine that destiny and you define what, what success looks like for you. Um, not everyone's going to be a doctor. Not everyone's going to be a lawyer, but you define your success, and, and that option is yours as a woman.
0: Hi, everyone. Time for this episode's intermission. First, I want to preview our next episode where I speak with Ian Rivers, a retired SAS soldier and our first guest from the UK military. We wanted to let you know in advance since we'll be discussing his upcoming row across the Atlantic. That's right. Ian is rowing a boat 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. He'll be doing this solo, unsupported, and without GPS. To find out more, definitely stay tuned for our next episode. But uh, to find out more in the interim and to see which organizations Ian is supporting, go to RowSentinel.com. That's RowSentinel, how it sounds, .com. As always, you can check us out at ThankYouNowWhat.com. We have our whole show backlog there with uh, episode descriptions, uh, links to all your favorite podcast players, links to our Twitter and Instagram. Um, You can always use the contact form or email us at ThankYouNowWhat at gmail.com for any feedback. Uh, If you really like what we're doing, you can contribute to the show via PayPal or Patreon. Uh, ben and I are deciding to, zo- to do a uh, Zoom call with some of our patrons for the uh, one-year anniversary of the show. So if you're signed up on Patreon, uh, and we might do more of these too, so we're going to send out uh, a Zoom link with a time, and you can come and chat with me and Ben, or um, perhaps some of our former guests will kind of send, uh, send an all-call to, uh, to the guest list. Uh, whoever wants to join. So, uh, and, and maybe we'll let you know who's coming. So if you're a patron, uh, you'll see that we look forward to talking to you. Um, please know if you share with us in doing the cost of business by PayPal or Patreon, that whatever doesn't go straight into production, uh, gets redirected to nonprofits that support or honor veterans. A lot of them we should talk on, uh, talk about on the show. Um, Very sincere thank you to everybody who takes part in the show, listening, uh, you know, whether you contribute or or you just enjoy it, share it with your friends, uh, spread the word of mouth. We love all of our listeners. Thanks. And let's get back to the episode. With a mom who's a veteran and very highly educated, how do they... Express their uh, their ambition to you. Have they ever talked about military, or have they ever talked about you know? My mom's a, a doctor of nursing. Like, mm-hmm. what has that influenced their goals, or how much do you talk about that with them, or you just want to let them figure it out on their own?
1: I don't think I want. I I try to let them figure it out on their own with the sense the, the question of, okay. A, uh, for example, one my youngest twin, she is a, she's a great artist. If you look in the background, there you see a lot of the artwork that's painted. They actually yeah. did um, a lot of the artwork that's there, and she's she's very fixated on. I want to be an architect, um, and I want to be um, an engineer. And you know, I was talking about my siblings and and coming to this country and what my parents told me. So you know, I'm very proud of my siblings. My brother, who's younger, he's a linesman in Philadelphia. My sister um, does coding, billing and coding for a large university hospital in Southern Jersey. My younger brother is a civil engineer. So we are all educated in, in our own way. Um, and my youngest daughter, she, she'll she say, I want to be an engineer like Uncle Alex. You know, I want to go to school and be an engineer. And my other twin, Sophia, she is like, um, I want to do coding, mom. I want to go and, and code stuff. and and work on computers because she likes to draw and she wants to do animation. And my question is always to them is, okay, these are the things you want to do. Are you passionate about it? Because for me, once you're passionate about what you want to do, you're really not going to be working. You're you're motivated to get up in the morning. And those are things I, I, when they express how they feel um, about certain things. And my eldest daughter, Allie, I ask her all the time. I'm like, Allie, what do you want to do? I always thought, you know, when she was younger, she'd say, mom, I want to, you know, be a pediatrician. And I, I chuckled because when I was in nursing school, I think she was the only kid in her grade who knew all the bones in her hands and feet. Like she could tell you, tarsal, metatarsal, like she could tell you what the bones in her hands and her feet were. because when I would study, I would teach her. And, you know, she'd say, I want to be a pediatrician. I want to be a pediatrician. And most recently we're talking about school. And I said, what do you want to do? She's like, mom, I just want a job to make money. And I said, okay, (laughs) then you better be willing to work and do anything. Right. She's like, I just want to make some money. And, you know, she reflects on my brother who's a linesman in Philadelphia. And he, he often laughs at myself and my younger brother because he makes more money than both of us. And he never went to college. He did an apprenticeship and he has no college debt. (laughs) and you know my youngest brother and I I'm a nurse the other one's a civil engineer and we both went to college we're college educated and we got college debt even with my GI Bill I have college loans right and so so for for my girls I try very hard to to ask questions when they express what they want to do and to get them to think about these decisions and just not jump into it so um as a mom I think that's critical, because part of that, you know, the critical thinking and and the skills that you need to be successful in life is to be able to sit and assess your situation. And you being in special forces, you know that more than than anything, Matt, that, you know, you you have to sit and assess your situation before you just jump into it and decide, hey, this is what I'm going to do. And think about the outcomes. Uh, There are instances where you don't have that opportunity to do so, but there's also an after-action report, right? You you sit and reflect. There's always a reflection on on your decisions. And I always encourage my girls, like, look, if you're going to jump into something, you're going to have to at some point sit and think about that decision. And can you live with yourself with the decision that you're making? And can you live with that decision that you're making, you know? And it's just the way I'm raising them. Uh, My husband says I, I teach them to argue too much. <laughs> because you know he'll you know him being a, who he was in the army and, and being military police yeah. he just wants to give an instruction and the girls just follow and I'm the one who's like well why do you think that's the right thing to do and he's like yeah. why are you teaching the kids to argue i said i'm not teaching them to argue i'm teaching them to think so we do have you know <laughs> that difference in yeah. opinion but it's very much to me it's it's important for them as, as, as girls to understand that they have a voice and they have a brain. Yeah. And I tell my girls all the time, you have a brain, use it, you know, use it. Think, think about what you're doing. That's just the way I, I feel towards parenting this is the way I was raised. I, I try to influence, I should say, to answer that question, to influence their what they want to do through them thinking through the process in, in more ways than others.
0: It makes me think of a high school teacher I had, Mr. Trombley, who he taught Latin, which... Mm-hmm. I don't really use Latin that much today, but the thing that I noticed about him as uh, as a teacher, you know, when I was like a freshman and sophomore in high school, is that he asked more questions of us than any other teacher, and it wasn't like quizzically. It was it was he taught by asking us to investigate and and challenge the things that we assumed. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was great. Like, you know, it was a language credit, but honestly, we spent, you know, a third of the class learning about the Latin language, a third of the class learning about classic history, and then a third of the class with him just asking us, you know, philosophical questions or, or giving us that ability to come up with our own answers. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was great. I still think about it, you know, now like 20 some years later.
1: Yeah. And it's so important, you know, and, and I learned that um, in nursing, as I was going through school, we actually had a course on, on critical thinking. It was a class on critical thinking that even though physicians write the orders, you execute those orders. And if you don't understand why a medication is being given or what's the processes in the body for, you know, the life the life type, lifetime um, of, of a medication, the you know, how long it's going to stay in your blood, I should say, um, or how your body excretes it, how your body metabolizes that medication. If you don't understand that and you're just following those orders and executing it, you know, at the end of the day, the physician wrote the orders, but you stuck the needle in the patient's arm. And it's important that you educate your patient, right? You, you have to educate your patient. You're getting the shot and this is how your body's going to break it down. This is how it's going to excrete, you, get rid of it. And these are, this is your diet. And these are the things you need to do. So that critical thinking was something that even growing up, we had to do it. You know, um, it was the way it was educated, different education system from the Caribbean to here. But coming into nursing and healthcare, I mean, it was something that was important. um, And it helped me through my role in congressional oversight, through my role in VA, because I just didn't take this for the answer. I needed to know the why behind it and and get, you know, a good explanation of a good reason of why things were happening Um, and you know, I'm very much in, in that science mind and science brain of constantly asking why and questioning because there's always a better way. And and challenging myself to find that better way, I think, is critical too for me.
0: Yeah. You talked about uh everyone in the family challenging your husband. He, you said he was uh he was an MP in the army, but he transitioned to healthcare after his service. Yeah. you talk a little bit more about how you guys met and and maybe you know, how you had two different stories of transition. Oh
1: my goodness. Um, so I met my husband and this is, you're going to chuckle at this. I was anywhere near a military base. We were actually, I went out, um, with my brothers in a bar in Philadelphia and uh, we were, I was just hanging out. Um, and I was out of the military in 07, um, and this guy just walked up to me and said, hi, I'm Ben. And I said, hi, I'm Tammy. He's like, oh, I'm in the army. and I'm home on leave. I said, yes. So is every you and every other guy in this bar. I mean, and <laughs> I said, and I'm Tammy and I was in the Navy. And I mean, I had my hair down. There's nothing about me screams that I was in the military. I have no tattoos, like nothing about me. You know, if you don't, if you just met me, you would never have guessed I was in the military. And, uh, and his hair was grown out a little bit at the time. I mean, he had spent over a year in Iraq at that point. Um, and I saw him while he he just walked up to me with him and his buddy and just started talking and he said he was in the army and I told him he was lying. I'm like, yeah, right. Um, he, nothing. I mean, he had the tattoos and everything, but I was You know, I was like, there's no way this guy, like, we're not even near a base. Like, what is he doing in Philadelphia? And he's like, no, 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 I really am. I'm getting deployed. I'm leaving. I'm getting shipped out again. He was on his R&R I think for like 2 weeks and he you know um, he was also going through a divorce and he was in Philadelphia um, with his family and they were just out partying having a good time and he he asked me for his number for my number by the end of the night and we were dancing and he couldn't dance at all oh my god it was horrible <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I'm from the Caribbean and I, I often chuckle at him and, and make fun of him for his dance skills. He has improved over the years. Though. Um, but he asked me for, for my number and um, he didn't have a phone. And I said, well, I'll give you my number. And he bought a napkin from the and, and he, he often talks about this. So I, I I feel happy telling you the story because he chuckles. He bought a napkin over from the, um, the the bar and he said, and he asked the, the bartender for a pen and he said, can I have your number with this napkin and the pen? And I said, are you so cheap? You don't have a cell phone. I mean, I still couldn't believe this guy was in the military, right? Like there's no way he was in the military. Like, okay, fine. So I wrote my name on a napkin and I wrote the number and I, and he was laughing and I said, why don't you turn around? I'll write it on your back. And I wrote it. And I said, Oh my God, you're so cheap. You don't have a cell phone. And I was chuckling. And I ended up, I was like, this guy, he's never going to talk to me again. Like I was just making fun of him. And the next day I got a call and he really was, he wasn't, you know, we weren't drinking at the time when we were talking on the phone, but the next day I got a call and we just chat and we, we talked that night. I remember for about six hours we were just on the phone just oh, talking wow. yeah just talking I mean he was getting deployed and I really like felt horrible for telling him he was in the military and not believing him like I felt horrible I'm like oh my god he wants to talk to me this guy's going back to a war zone and I mean he was in Ramadi in some serious pretty serious areas when he was deployed and and he started telling me his story a little bit more about you know deployment what was happening and and stuff and I just felt horrible. I was like, Oh my God, how could I have been? So, I mean, and I was in the military that, you know, I was also, uh, I was out, he was still in and and I had to have been, I should have been a little bit more supportive, but, um, after his, uh, we we spoke the next day and he said, Hey, come out to, to Pennsylvania up in, um, Doris is where his family's at. I have a going away party. And I said, I'm not driving all the way from Jersey to there. No way. And then we didn't talk. And then the next day, um, I got a call from Atlanta waiting on his flight to to Germany and to head back to Iraq. And we spoke for like, he borrowed someone's cell phone at the airport and called me and I said, Oh my God. Okay. Fine. I said, well, call me. And then keep, and he just kept calling me and we emailed and we started talking over phones. And and I would, he would call like once a week when he was around. um, And we just started talking from there. And for six, seven months when he was in Iraq, we, Email, talked. He wrote letters, um, sent flowers to my job. (laughs) And I, and I kept in contact with him and and we just started building this really cool friendship. And out of that friendship grew love. And, and, you know, we were just like, he literally came back from Iraq um, around March of 2008. And by June, he was out of the service. So he could not wait to leave. I mean, after spending darn near 31 months the majority of his time in service he could not wait to leave service he got out and went into corrections um right away and um so he went from you know that that military military police into corrections very similar mindset similar you know experience similar
0: yeah seems um, like a natural fit right first step out mm
1: -hmm, yeah it was for him and going through that process he started realizing like oh my god I'm in here um you know a lot of the, the the stuff that comes with war and coming home when I I call it often the honeymoon phase is over right uh and I don't know if you've experienced this but when you come home you know you're excited everything is new and you're catching up on all the movies you missed, the life that you missed you know you're you're doing all these things and and you're so busy with life and once life started becoming routine he started experiencing some of the same things that a lot of our soldiers experience transitioning through around 20 20- these things started happening. And he made the decision when I was done with school that he wanted to, to also go to school. So he started on the path. And, and he also used his GI Bill and went back to school for his bachelor's in psychology. And at the time, he was like, look, I got to get out of the the, the the prison system. I just can't do this anymore. The stress of being locked in with prisoners all the time is too much. So. He uh, when he graduated, he took a job with the VA doing benefits, a veteran service representative um, at the Philadelphia Regional Office um, for a little bit. And when I took my job in D.C., um, he resigned his post. And, you know, once I decided that we were going to move and, and he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally on board. He's very supportive of the, my, my career goals. Um, he said, OK, fine. So he resigned and then he went back to school for his master's in health administration. Because he was seeing in um, the veterans benefits claims process, how many issues there were with the healthcare sector, because he was also processing and looking at medical records. And he was seeing all of the issues and the disconnect between the civilian and the the VA healthcare um, systems. And he started loving the quality management aspect of it. So For him, the transition, I think, has been tougher going from that military um, law enforcement background to the healthcare background, because where in law enforcement, you're more assertive um, in healthcare, you need to have those soft people skills. So that, you know, and I couldn't tell you like how he feels exactly. I think that's for each individual to express, but that transition from law enforcement to healthcare even though he's motivated, he has that, you know, that critical thinking skills that, you know, I want to improve the quality of healthcare, the transition has definitely been, I would say, tougher than than most. And and a lot of people go through where they're changing careers. But um I think for a military person, um, that shift where you're coming out of a space where you have a sense of purpose, you have a sense of, This is what I'm doing. Um, I'm totally changing careers altogether. It's very, it's tough. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's something that I I know he's capable of. He's actually getting ready to finish his doctoral degree in in, um, health sciences from Drexel um, in June. So he's getting ready to graduate with his doctorate degree um oh, wow. yes he has you know been applying for Perfect. many jobs and interviewing and and most of these jobs are like oh you need to have more experience and more expertise in in healthcare, and and for him i think it's the toughest thing was saying like look i don't have the experience you want me to have but i i'm willing to learn i'm willing to train you know um so it's still that search for finding that common ground of what you know how he can utilize both of those skill sets to improve the quality of healthcare is his focus right now. But yeah, our experience have been totally, for me, I was transitioning from healthcare to healthcare. His transition was totally career changing um, transition. Yeah. And, and it definitely was, was different. Something the military doesn't prepare you for, by the way. Um, I've seen it with yeah. even officers who has transitioned, retired, you know, I've seen colonels who got hired as, you know, I actually work at like GS 14 level. And they went from leading, you know, hundreds of people to just supervising like five individuals. And even that transition is tough when you retire from service to come into the, the federal space or any job. So I think that's something that we could do a better job of with the military is preparing for transition. But again, the military is focused on readiness, right? But that's, right. I think there's, like, like you said, this podcast is looking at that transition too, and, and having honest conversations about it. And it's not easy. It's tough. It's very, very difficult.
0: Yeah. On the on the show, we hear a lot about identity, community, and purpose. Uh, but also, there's this infrastructure around you uh, for support as well. You know, and I think that when we talk to just anybody, we all have. That thing, and it's so funny that we've had a couple episodes where someone has come on and just been like, "I couldn't find a dentist," <laughs> or that something <laughs> like that. That small to to you know people coming out with like serious uh, problems where they're having to really fight that uphill battle against something like PTSD, homelessness, um, substance abuse, um, you know, military sexual trauma, those kinds of things.
1: I think for me, so I, and this is me as a nurse and, and, you know, not every veteran has um, a husband or a wife that's a clinician, a nurse or someone in the medical background to really understand um, PTSD or, or TBI. And and I'll just have a very honest conversation with you because I I think it hopefully could help someone out there um, who's going through this, but, you know, when you, I was never deployed. Um, So, you know, uh, my husband was deployed. PTSD is something that, the way I look at it, it's not something that you just cure and it goes away. And over the years, you know, as a nurse, I, I saw it and I lived it, and I and I heard many stories of other wives, you know, husbands dealing with either traumatic brain injury um, or PTSD, and and how they they dealt with it. And for me, I I had to learn to compartmentalize. There are instances, for example, I like to talk, and my husband and I have spoken about this. I I used to to say, you know, if if I knew Ben was having, you know, a bad day or whatever, I would say, um, I would call whatever was happening. I used to say it was like when, you know, because PTSD, I used to say it was a mistress. I said that mistress better go back where she came from. Like I didn't want to deal with her. And, you know, if, I used to, 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 to face it in that sense of like this, this third entity, like a mistress in my marriage, who's just here to rear her head once in a while and just make, make it known. And it would just be like, you know, either painful to deal with, but I knew what was happening. And I had the awareness um, through my education and also through my experience to deal with that and see that this is, this is not my husband. This is something else that's impacting him. And, and he's working through that. And I had to yeah. understand that those things take time, you know? And um, once I start saying, and, and, and I told him that, I said, you know, sometimes, and, and when I first told him that, he just kind of looked at me like, okay. I said, it's like a mistress. It's like, she's just there to make my life difficult. And then she goes away. And I said, just put her away, put her back in the box, you know? And, and if I get frustrated, it wasn't at him. It was just like, to me, my frustration was a, a this this third entity of, of what was a part of our marriage. And, and as much as, you know, people don't, I guess it's, it might be a taboo topic when you talk about mental health. I think it's important to understand that families are impacted long after the war. Um, after your experience, what, what you experience in war, those stories live with you. And It took years, and, and there's still things my husband tells me about, and we've been married now 11 years, this year' be 12 years of marriage that I haven't heard the stories or certain things that, that triggers him. It'll come up in conversation, and he'll just tell me. And when I was younger and we first got married, I would pry and I would question and I would get so frustrated when we couldn't have a conversation. And he would yeah. just be totally, um, you know, blank or, or block me out. And I felt like, oh, where's, there's a wall here. And the wall, it took me years to understand it wasn't me. Um, you know, he had to deal with things in his own way. How you know, he chose to deal with them, you know, was between him and, and his therapist. I wasn't his therapist. I'm not his therapist. You know, I'm his wife. and But I also had to have an awareness and awareness. Um, working with other soldiers and hearing their stories and being on the clinical side of it, I, I started understanding a lot more of what was happening. to has been through, and it takes time to process. And it's, I think healing is a lifelong thing after war. That you, know, you can say some days are good days and some days are bad days, and it's something that I chose to accept. And it's part of war. It's part of, it impacts your family. I talk very freely about my girls. Um, You know, most most kids run around, uh, he lives in a house full of women. We all squeal. (laughs) We squeal. Uh, My youngest daughter has a high-pitched voice that would drive anyone crazy. Um, She loves to squeal at her sister. And she just doesn't scream. She squeals. And for the longest while, I'd have to tell the girls, stop screaming stop screaming and now they're older to understand that that's screaming my husband has bad tinnitus he was a i was in the army but he sat on top of the gun you know with the big guns so that shakes you so he has really bad tinnitus he was in a couple ieds and when they squeal it's like triggers and it rings in his ear as they're getting older we're educating them a little bit more but not every person has to have a conversation with their children of hey, don't go waking up daddy and startling him in bed like that because he might freak out, you know, um, but those are things that happen and you've got to talk about it with your kids and and tell them. But, you know, when soldiers go to war, they're not thinking about the after effects of when they come back, how it's going to impact their lives. Um, they're there to serve. And it's it's our mission when they come back to take care of them. Because these things happen, and it's gonna it's gonna happen it's tough, it impacts families, some families break up because of it, but for me the 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 more you educate the population and and, and be honest with your children and have these conversations it's it's important to do that because I think if it, it it shows them that hey, it's just not daddy doesn't like when you scream, it's because his ears are ringing when you scream, or you can't startle him and scare him like that because he might freak out um because it's just who he is and who he you know how war influenced him in in certain ways and those are things that's i think important for people
0: you know it's interesting you discuss this with your family because i know a lot of people would just say you know my dad was in a war and we don't talk about that or or You know, even like in past generations, right? My Mm -hmm. dad was in Vietnam. We don't talk about that, but like, you know, sometimes it just don't bother him. Yeah. But I I think that, you know, if you're trying to create a a better functioning household uh, and a more understanding, you know, children, I think there's a lot of value to that.
1: Yeah. and And I think and that's important as I was going through my confirmation process. And if you look in, online, you see my pictures, my girls have been a part of all of this. They have been a part of my journey in education and my career because taking care of our veterans gives me a sense of purpose. You know, I spoke to you about um, service to school and and I said, you know, I even had a hard time transitioning and, and understanding which school and selecting which school. And Giving back and, and, and educating people about about that time um, after you when you're leaving service, I think is, is critical. So for my my girls, it's important that they understand what motivates me and what gives me purpose and drive. Um, obviously, I, I want to be successful for them, but the the larger part of my community is to ensure that you risk your life and you too, Matt, you did it, right? You went to war. Um, coming back and talking about your experience is not always easy. And your this generation, um, the OIF, OEF veterans, I think there's a lot that happened with our Vietnam era veterans that we can learn from uh, and how they were treated. I think, you know, we shouldn't be repeating mistakes of the past. I think it's critical that we stop and reflect on what had happened um, and ensure that our, you know, this 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 generation of war veterans, when they return, that we have our communities understand their needs and we're also ready to take care of them. And that's that to me, ensuring that every veteran's veteran knows that that hey, there's there's someone out here we're willing to listen, we're willing to hear, we're willing to take care of you. Please read. I think it's critical for me to get that message through because you're not alone in this. It's scary and it's lonesome transitioning, but you're not alone. Someone's always ready to, to be there for you and help you. Live.
0: So I wanted to get back into, we kind of started off at the beginning talking about your position at the VA and uh, did a quick once over, but I want to take a little bit deeper look at that. So when did you first become involved with the VA system? And then I understand that you were an investigator and before your appointment and then just, yeah, like wondering what an investigator does or what that was like.
1: So I was uh, the healthcare investigator for the House Committee on Veteran Affairs, so a congressional investigator. Um, And part of, you know, being an investigator in the legislative branch, um, obviously Congress has the oversight to the executive branch. You are looking at, in my oversight role, whether or not VA is following laws and regulation as their own policies. You're also looking at, for me, it was looking at uh, spending. Um, Is there, you know, transparency around, you know, the spending of of dollars, resources that's necessary? So part of what I did coming into um, my role as a nurse was really looking at BHA operation. How is the, you know, where's the oversight within VA? And to keep, you know, the power separate the executive branch separate from the executive branch, you know, we had the power of inquiry. So you can inquire, you can ask questions um about how programs are being executed. I did a lot of traveling to areas where there were concerns in the way veterans were receiving healthcare, whether it be from a waitlist standpoint, we had cases involving suicides, we had uh, several veteran cases involving suicide, suicide, uh, homicide slash suicide, and looking at their medical records, the VA dropped the ball in any instance, right? Um, Doing clinical reviews. So even though I was doing operational review of the health system and the benefit system, and looking for opportunities to improve efficiencies, or saying, hey, you know, we are asking VA to do more, but this program is under-resourced. It doesn't have enough funding or not the right people, the, the, the right amount of people. And that's where Congress comes in. Congress can say, look, we need to give VA more money for X, Y, and Z, or we need to have additional oversight in particular areas as it relates to personnel actions. Um, or for example, settlement agreements. Is VA settling at the local level and the national level doesn't know anything of it? And if you, if you look at VA as a whole, it's the largest integrated healthcare system in the United States. So in my role as an investigator, instead of sitting in Washington and asking questions of EA in Washington, um, and I would always say, you know, questioning the bureaucrats when I was, was on the Hill, and it's what I did. I, I questioned the bureaucrats in Washington. I, I took a different approach. I actually went out to the hospital, visited the medical center, and being a nurse and having my background, I could communicate with the physicians. I could talk to the nurses, the the medical assistants, the, the sanitation workers, Um Everyone, you know, um, from the house aides, you know, to, to the nursing staff, to the leaders within a health system, I would meet with them, um, union representatives, that vet, local veteran service organizations, I would meet with also, and really understand what were their problems. At the local level, and I would connect the dots at the national level, saying, "Hey, this problem is just not local to one particular area in VA. It's happening across the country. Let's look at it. Is it a policy issue? Is it a training issue? Is it a money issue? What is, what is the real, the root cause of these problems?" And you know, VA would actually, for for my approach, and and at the time, I worked for Chairman Jeff Miller and then Chairman Rowe. Um, Chairman Miller is from Florida. Chairman Rowe was from Tennessee my approach to doing oversight into VA was they would only get one hour's notice before I was on site. That's it. So, um, you know, Washington would get a, a phone call one hour before I hit a medical center. Like I, I visit a medical center, like, let's say I was in Spokane or I was in, you know, um, the Midwest somewhere, um, or in Texas, um, New Hampshire, Vermont, these medical centers at the VA would get one hour's notice that I was on site, and I was going to do congressional oversight. And that could mean anything from a quality review, a record review, meeting with your staff, meeting with the local union representatives, or in some instances, in some areas, I actually met with community leaders from the district, meeting with local hospital leaders to really understand what was a barrier or what are some of the, the, the concerns they have with delivering care to veterans. And for example, one of the major concerns that a lot of health system has was the delayments and the delayed payments. VA was not paying the health care bills. You know, veterans were getting the care. They were being referred to the local health systems. And in some instance, you know, some of these local health systems are really small and they depend on those dollars to, to to stay afloat. And if VA was delayed or not paying the bills, that's problematic. And, you know, that's not improving access. That, that becomes a barrier because then community providers are like, hey, I want to treat my veterans, but I really can't afford it because I'm the one right now putting the bill for this. VA is not paying the bill and it's so much bureaucracy to just get the bill paid. And, and a lot of hospital leaders were also, in, in the private sector, just didn't understand how VA operated. You know, they they would try to work with the VA and then they'd get the bureaucratic response of, hey, that needs to be approved through Washington or that needs mm-hmm. to be approved at the VISN, which is like the regional hub for, for a lot of the medical centers. So I did a lot of educating as I was listening, educating leaders on how to work closely with VA um, and and. Being a congressional investigator, I had a very wide scope of things I can get involved in. Um, I looked very closely at VA's prescription drug monitoring programs. How are they tracking narcotics within a medical center? How is, what is, what is, what is DEA's, DEA has oversight of all, you know, in 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 a hospital system. They can come in at any time and monitor how you're prescribing, um, how you're distributing, how you're storing, how you're tracking does DEA even look at VA for that? And we found in some instances DA was and some instances that didn't. So it was how, how do other regulatory bodies that oversee um, the private healthcare systems, how are they overseeing VA when they all work for the same person, right? At the end of the day, they're all part of the executive branch. So it was just identifying some of those bureaucratic barriers or... Um, in some instances, opportunities for improvement and bringing that back to Washington. Um, a lot of our findings informed policy um, fixes, changes in the law, and and those changes were meaningful because it. I stood by some of some of the things I was finding because it was just not the voice of of individuals telling me things were happening or, or whistleblowers coming forward and saying things were happening. I was also responsible for gathering the evidence. And you can't argue with the facts. You can't argue with the evidence that you're finding. And with hard evidence, it was very easy to convince members to vote a particular way on matters that you know, was impacting, in some instances, their district. And they didn't even know about it. Um, hmm. Many times um, I got sent out to locations that were just really hot spots where there were issues um, that I needed to be on site. And some days as a congressional investigator, you're working all day in the hospital, but the best time to do oversight is later in the evening when, you know, your patients are gone and uh, um, you're there with staff. I've met with, sometimes I've walked into medical centers and I'm a veteran also. I would just sit in the waiting room and talk to veterans, local veterans. They didn't know where I was from. I'm a, I'm a veteran, I'm there, and, and just have conversations. And a lot of times the veterans knew what was some of the problems at the medical centers because the staff mm-hmm. would tell them, Or they would just know because the communities are so small um, and the problems are so transparent, but just nothing was being done about it. So being a nurse and and having those skills to sit and talk to patients um, and really understand what was happening was very helpful in that role. And it was a very different approach to congressional oversight than I had ever seen on the Hill um, in some instances, a lot of individuals that I worked with were very, you know, I've seen in other committees, very hands off. They're like, oh, well, just request this from the executive branch and we'll get the documents when we get the documents. I was very much, no, I want the documents. And if you're not going to give it to me, I'm going to go and get it. And that yeah. that was my approach to, to congressional oversight. And I wish other committees were just as aggressive in that sense, because it doesn't matter who sits in the administrative branch. At the end of the day, we have career individuals who are federal employees whose paychecks are being funded by taxpayers and Congress has a responsibility to ensure that, you know, those individuals are accountable um, for how they spend taxpayer dollars. And we see waste, fraud and abuse. It's rampant in the federal government. In many instances, the IG reports come out showing that, but we don't have conversations about those things because it's like, they're, Hey, it's not my money. It's not coming out. You know, it's coming out of Congress, Congress tax taxpayers are paying it and, Sometimes, as taxpayers, I can say even I, before coming to Washington, I was ignorant to the fact that the amount of money that was being wasted on programs where there were no measurable outcomes, but yet we keep putting money because it was—it sounds good and it looks great, and you know, some member might get some votes from that. But at the end of the day, there was no accountability around those the, the spending of those dollars, and to me, it was important as a taxpayer and as a veteran to ensure that when we invest in programs that there are measurable outcomes for those programs and, and we're tracking and individuals are held accountable when, when there's waste and abuse in the system. And, and that was my motivation for for what I'm, for what I did as a congressional investigator.
0: Yeah. I like that you got out of, you made it a point to get out of Washington Mm -hmm. while that's your job. Yeah. I think that a lot of voters and taxpayers, you know, are, are demanding of that from the people who represent them. Yeah. Right. And you would go to these smaller areas. Like I go, you know, when I have to go to the VA, it's in Manhattan Mm -hmm. and it's, it's pretty big. Uh, uh, I'm sure it's probably one of the bigger ones. And if you're talking about oversight, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have eyes on that, but I'm sure there's a tiny little VA medical center somewhere, you know, in, in a, in the Midwest or or, or wherever where it's probably like a few rooms and a smaller staff. And and we still have to care for those people too. And it's not just the medical center too. Like the VA is pretty broad. You have benefits, disability, Mm -hmm. education, uh, home loans, all of that.
1: Yeah. It's a very large. um, And like I said, a bureaucratic system, that's very siloed. So for example, you might be, I've, I've had most recently um, been working and, and since I, you know, I left VA, I've been, Trying to help veterans who have reached out, even on LinkedIn or or other instances, for for help and how to navigate the the bureaucracy. But I have seen heard veterans say, "Well, um, I I'm in VHA, I get my health care, but they're telling me I'm not eligible because I need to sign up for benefits. Like, how do I sign up for benefits?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, the system is so siloed. They're not tracking like on the benefit side. Like, you're in VA health where you're going, you know." They, they need to do a better job at breaking those silos and communicating um, to ensure that there's like a seamless transition for service members who are leaving service. And I mean, there's more work around that now, but still, a lot of the systems that's utilized in some instances are antiquated. Um, they're older systems for as modern as we have become around you know technology. The federal government still operates on a lot of instances paper. I think COVID has definitely shifted that. There's a lot of laws that's been pat- enacted to, to modernize some of the systems in VA and they're working diligently to do that. But even the implement- implementation a lot of times can be delayed just because of bureauc- bureaucratic barriers. Um, it's not because people don't want to do their job. They want to, but there's so many check the boxes or this law you know, impacts this one. So we need to delay this process. And at the end of the day, veterans have been impacted. So for me, it's like, where's a sense of urgency in Washington? And that, that was my reason for getting out because getting those stories and hearing and, and hearing from the veterans, you can't, like I said, you can't argue with the facts and bringing those back to Washington and educating members of this is a real impact. If you're delayed, whether in passing a law, getting the votes for a law, or delayed in in, in Washington from B's perspective on um, rolling out policies related to to you know, I don't know, home loans, for example, or GI Bill benefits. Um, these delays in policies impact people. They impact lives. They impact families in many instances. And in some smaller areas, like you said, where VA is like, VA can be, in some instances, the main employer in a district. And and it impacts, you know, just not the veterans, it impacts the employees also. So these delayed, delays in Washington impacts us across, for everybody, impacts every veteran, I think. And we have about 22 million veterans in the United States. Not everyone uses VA, healthcare system, I should say, um, or the benefit system. They use the home loans, the GI Bill. Um, so there's a lot of people being impacted when, when there's delays in, in policies and good, good legislation, I should say, to improve operations
0: ben and i went to business school and saw a lot of doctors in our class Mm -hmm. and uh you know at first you're saying man there's a lot of doctors in business school but then i think about what you said a little earlier and if you want to be making policy you want practitioners in there Mm -hmm. right and and in our our world if you want to be running a business that's focused on healthcare, you want practitioners in there you want this these but i i've also heard you say you know you're Yesterday and today, you said, you know, hey, I'm a nurse by trade. I'm not a politician. I'm mm-hmm. not a lawyer. You know, when you're on your doing, you're on your Senate yeah. uh, confirmation, and so let's get into uh, you know your appointment. So you are the former uh, VA Assistant Secretary for Accountability and Whistleblower Protection, mm-hmm. and that is a newer office. But I think that uh, it, it's it's pretty obvious from our conversation or what. People have read before that it's necessary.
1: It's, it's so. absolutely necessary. I think there's been, and I don't like talking about politics. I like talking about people, right? And the impact yeah, yeah. it has, policy has. Um, and that's why I said I'm not a lawyer. I'm not here to, to convince you either way. Let the facts speak for themselves. But This office was necessary in many ways, um, and I'm a strong believer in it because I've seen politicians change in the uh, legislative branch. Members get voted out, many instances. Um, Committees change. The executive branch, the administration changes. Um, In VA, we had over 30-something politicals at any given time, Um, you know, for implementing what is, I would say, the administration's agenda, whatever that may be. And that could be in any administration, even the current administration, they have an agenda on what their priorities may be. But at the end of the day, you have career executives who are senior executives in the federal government who sustain operation beyond any administration. So they are there to ensure that when the administration is transitioning Um, or whether, you know, a a political is no longer in charge of that office, overseeing the office, that they're there to execute the daily operation and ensure that things stay running across the country. And this office, the Accountability Act, was focused on investigating um, allegations of misconduct or poor performance regarding VA senior leaders. And to me, I saw firsthand working in, in my congressional role where, you know, we talk about waste and we talk about fraud and we talk about, you know, retaliation. And we have senior executives who there were findings of wrongdoings and nothing ever happened. You know, we continue to talk about, you know, misuse funds in IT and nothing was ever happening or, or, in, or in different spaces. And this is across the federal government. It's just not particular to VA, but I'm familiar with VA so I could speak. So this law was focused on receiving disclosures from whistleblowers. Across the country, establishing a hotline where, you know, the secretary, whoever is in that role or any leader within VA can no longer say, hey, I didn't know about this problem. I didn't know about a wait list or veterans dying, you know, when they were on a wait list. Um, we receive, you know, disclosures from staff across the country, um, VA staff and applicants for VA employment. So any disclosure can come through the Office of Accountability. Um, we also investigate and you know, the senior leaders, and uh, when there were, there are findings, we recommend disciplinary action in those findings. I was responsible for recommending the disciplinary action. And part of the law was if BA refused to take that disciplinary action, they, they got, you know, the secretary had to then notify Congress. And BA didn't take that disciplinary action um, regarding a senior leader. Um, During my time there, we had uh, EEO findings related to discrimination. And, you know, I recommended removal of those senior executives from VA for that. And, and those things were important to understand because these senior executives, long before any administration, uh, as the administration change, politicals come and go, they're going to remain and they need to be held accountable. I mean, their, their salaries are funded by taxpayers and there needs to be a level of transparency, too. Um, in my role and part of the law was also advising the secretary on all accountability matters related to VA. Um, I also was responsible for standing up VA's first like corporate level compliance office, which was tracking and confirming implementation of recommendations from the Government Accountability Office, the VA's Office of Inspector General, the VA Office of Medical Inspector, and um, the Office of Special Counsel. And one of the things that we've talked about quite often in VA and in, in many parts of the federal executive branch is, you know, the IG puts out recommendations. GAO has a high-risk list, and we have continued to see problems over the years arise and, and, and repeat itself with no confirmation, with no, no real tracking or trending of this information. Um, one really good example that I speak of a lot is sterile processing. Um, sterile processing has been a problem or was a problem a lot when I was on the Hill in VA and across the country. And we saw at the local level, VA was addressing it, you know, in different parts of the country, they were addressing sterile processing, but at the national level, it was a broader issue. And, you know, part of setting up an office and in the law and setting up an office that tracks the VA's compliance with recommendations would now allow us to see, hey, you know, where are, are are somebody's failures systemic? Or is it just a local issue that we're dealing with? And, you know, for me, the broader part was, you know, sometimes it takes IG about a year or maybe a year and a half to put out a, a report on, on a problem. In, in healthcare, you don't have a year to wait on a report for recommendation. You need to be able to be flexible and identify issues early Um, And address those issues. So in the time it takes IG to put out a report, at the same time, I'm also receiving whistleblower disclosures. So I can utilize that data to then trend and look at areas that I would consider hotspots or topics that that are a concern that could be at the national level. And that's in the law is to identify trends for the secretary, um, utilizing the data that's gathered from our disclosures and from, our, um, from the recommendations that VA is saying is closed. Because a lot of times IG closed recommendations and two years later, it might, the same issue would pop up someplace else at VA. So now this office that, that I set up at the, the, I set up a compliance and oversight office in the Office of Accountability was to track at the corporate level these problems and then utilizing data to trend it. And then I was responsible for developing and implementing training for all the employees on whistleblower rights and protection. A lot of what I did in this office was basically set up the investigative framework also for investigations, how it should be conducted, um, and it should be unbiased without the influence of any leader. I worked very diligently to ensure that whistleblowers' identity was protected. Um, It's part of the law. If they, they choose to remain anonymous, how do we capture that? How do we case manage in you know some of the the matters that were we were tracking so uh, as much as I, I was not an attorney at all going into that and, and and for me it was important utilizing my healthcare background but also utilizing my skills from the hill and the understanding the the bureaucracy of va to to inform how this office would be set up and built out and it was quite successful. And actually, there's a new, new nominee going in um, recently nominated, and her confirmation hearing is coming up for this role. And And it's a big task. Um, this is new, and anything new in government can be scary because for the first time, we actually have a law that's tracking the executives within a department. Um, and that's unique. That's very unique. Um, and I think it's something that can absolutely be replicated in both the public. private sector, because even the private sector right now, they're dealing with with whistleblower issues and and how do you, you know, manage and ensure that employees are heard. And with technology and with advancements in technology, people knows when there are problems, where to go, who to reach out to. And sometimes for some companies, it can cost millions and millions of dollars if you're not listening to individuals when they raise concern and you're not engaging your employees to address those concerns. Um, It can cost you a lot of money. And I think this VA, as as scary as the law may have been um, for some individuals, I think it was absolutely necessary to do. And uh, hopefully, the framework that I set up is going to—they're going to—the team is going to continue to build on it. And uh, I'm confident now with that, the teams in place is, they have the tools and and the right skill set to be able to execute the intent of the law.
0: Yeah. So you had a team there, but with the new administration i think we asked about this yesterday if you're part of an administration is it a wholesale change when when that change is over and uh you said it doesn't always have to be but uh in your case you know you submitted your resignation and now are going to be on to something else but the team that you uh, built up there do they do they Carry on forward.
1: Yes, yes, they are career employees. So, um, the when the politicals go, they they stay on board. And one of the things that I think was critical for for me in that role was to ensure that that office was not a politicized office. That office was there to execute the law. In this instance, for the office of accountability, it was very prescriptive. It, in my in my you know for me, um, it was very clear what I was responsible for. And I was only political in the office. I had one other political when I got there, and and he departed shortly after I got there in the office. He left the office. But um, it was critical that the career employees, you know, I was there to, you know, as a political, but, you know, when you become a Senate-confirmed political appointee, you don't serve... An administration, you don't, you know, your oath is to the constitution, similar to when you joined the military, you know, you, you have your party affiliation, but at the end of the day, you have to execute on what the law is. And to me, that was critical because you're not serving an administration. You're not serving an individual. You're there to serve, you know, the people. And that was very important. My staff knew that about me. I never talked politics with them. Um, they, they knew I was a, an appointee in, in my role. I was Senate confirmed. But for them, they, they they knew that I was there to ensure that the wall was executed correctly, and that was a priority for me. And they stayed on, and and they're doing, they're thriving. Um, they have a hearing coming up next week, and they're going to be testifying on issues that that's happened in the office or things that's happening in the office. They're going to do good, great things, and I, and this is important for VA. And I told them, I said, you know, this is new. It's scary. It's never been done before, but it's necessary. And they knew that, and I was the first assistant secretary for accountability in government, and that's unheard of. But at some point, we need to have individual like-minded individuals pushing for more accountability and transparency in other parts of the federal government.
0: That's great. Just hearing your whole story from, you know, first coming well, first growing up without running water uh, to your family. Being able to, uh, you know, to to move the whole family, come here, enlisting at a very young age, getting out, raising a family, pursuing a bunch of education, to being uh, an assistant secretary uh, at the VA. I think now is an appropriate time to ask you the show question, which we ask everybody is, who are you today if you never served?
1: Oh, my God. I've never been asked this question before, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wouldn't know what my purpose would be. Really? I wouldn't know my purpose. I would be, I wouldn't know how to be heard. I would say I would be, I would feel, I wouldn't feel the sense of purpose that I currently feel if I didn't serve. Um, I have a very strong sense of family. Um, I grew up in a culture that's very, very family oriented. So I I always felt like I had a sense of community coming to America. um, You know, leaving a lot of family behind and coming to America and kind of losing that the military gave me that sense of family, but you know, it's, it mattered to me. Um, But for some individuals it mattered, it may matter to them more, but to me that mattered, but I wouldn't, if I'd never served, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would feel the sense of purpose that I have or fulfilled in, in what I'm doing. I feel like military service allowed me to tap into something that I didn't know existed, which is my voice, the confidence that I needed to know that I have a voice, I should be heard. I don't think I'll be as confident to question questions. Lawmakers to question yeah. executives.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, sometimes I am still very much intimidated. I, you know, I went from being the E three to the honorable to Mayor Bonzanto and what a doctorate. And the thought of that is intimidating. It's very much intimidating. But the military helped me get here as much as I couldn't. Conform to not asking questions. It gave me a sense of purpose, a sense of confidence as a woman I think I needed. I think it was always there, but I just didn't know how to tap into it. So I credit the military for that. In many ways. Many, many ways. I credit the military. What about you? Now you have to tell me. I'm to yes. put you on the spot.
0: About it on other ep- you have to listen to our old episodes. I can't do it every episode. <laughs>
1: Okay, I'll go look at it. <laughs>
0: okay, but My, I think sometimes I joke around like I would have been an athlete or something just because I like sports. But you know, some yeah, it's uh it's hard for me to think of too. So I get the I get to ask other people. But uh,
1: it's yeah, I, I feel
0: sh- <laughs> all the thing all the stuff you said shine really does shine through in getting to hear more and go into a lot of these topics with you. So
1: yeah, yeah, it's really um, wow you know, I, I think about it and I often tell my husband too because he was a, he got out as a corporal and I said, you know, you went from Corporal Banzanto to in a few weeks you're going to be Dr. Banzanto. Um, yeah. And we often chuckle, we're like, the house of doctor and doctor. I said, yeah, <laughs> some very highly educated individuals. But like I said earlier, the resiliency um, training that the military puts you through to have the confidence to know that you can accomplish anything yeah. it's amazing and i wish more veterans could know that as, as tough as it may seem you have you have the tools to do it and don't let your past define who you are today you get you, it's it's a choice who you want to become um, growing up very poor and without any basic You know, necessities, I would say, running water, electricity, things that we very much take for granted in this country, um, those things were never an excuse for me. Um, Those things, they were motivation to know how hard it can be. And I looked at it. In the moment, when I was a teenager, I hated it. Blamed my parents, probably, you know. But now that I've gotten older and I have children of my own, I've come to appreciate that. That sense of hard work, and dedication, it pays off in the end, as long as you, you stick with it. Um, you know that someone's always willing to help. I have a network of mentors. I, I am the person who would reach out and say, hey, can I please have a conversation to understand how you got there? Um, and I, I'm willing to admit when I'm, I don't know something. I'm willing to say, um, I, I don't know it all, but I'm willing to, to find the answer and it's amazing how many executives and leaders have been very open in, in being my mentor in both academia. A lot of my professors have stayed in con- contact with me even after I left school and college, um, finished my degree. We kept in contact. I speak at some, some of I actually speak in some of their classes and uh, uh, I encourage veterans to reach out and, and don't be afraid you know a lot of people are out there willing to help you just say hey i just want to learn just tell me how did you get here and that question has opened a lot of doors for me in in many instances because a lot of leaders want they're willing to mentor and train and and work with you and the ones that don't trust me you don't need them in your life
0: (laughs) so well a lot of people say that uh a lot of people say that the, the best vehicle for upward socioeconomic mobility in the country is higher education and getting a college degree. And then, you know, I also say, that, well, I wouldn't have got that higher education if I had never served. I wouldn't have mm-hmm. realized what I wanted to do. And then financially, it would have been a lot more difficult, too. And so, um, you know, I would, I would argue back that military service can do the same thing or it can, you know, add, add fuel to that fire. And uh, yeah.
1: It motivates
0: me. Yeah, more people start sending their kids to serve and and it becomes, you know, more socially acceptable, especially, you know, we're both enlisted Mm -hmm. veterans and, and, uh, you know, like it's the best opportunity I've ever had in my life.
1: Yeah, I know. And and I think it's interesting because, you know, my husband and I were talking about, you know, sometimes when I, you know, worked in BU in my previous role on the Hill, I sit around the table with a lot of executives and it's like Colonel and general and Lieutenant Colonel or major, you know, and, and a bunch of officers. And I was like, yeah, well, I was the E3, but I chose a different path than they did and it's okay to do that. And, you know, and even for some individual or some of our veterans out there who are not, you know, they, they're in service and and they have a skill set, but they may not be college bound. Um, similar to my, my like I told you earlier, my brother never went to college and he makes more money than I do. And he often says, hey, I'm not in debt. I'm not in student loan debt, but he did an apprenticeship. So college may not be, and that higher education may not be for everyone, but finding out the military does help you find that sense of purpose that you want. What is your dream? What do you want to do? And you get an opportunity to test. Test the way I look at it you get an opportunity to be in a career and you're getting paid to it to figure out if it's what you like for when you grow up you know what I mean like as you're going like I went into the healthcare space in the military and I continued with that because I enjoyed it I went in with the idea of being a doctor I was like nope not for me I want to be a nurse because I enjoyed working for people working with people and for you the same thing you know you you saw you know through your training and everything else you You had it in you to accomplish being educated, and that's what you wanted. But some of the veterans might say, hey, I want to be an electrician, and I want to open my little uh, small business when I get out and have my own electrical company. And VA has a small business administration for veterans to help them with, with things like that. So there's, like, so many different programs out there. But there's no other place where you can get the opportunity to explore your career and explore your dreams, get paid for it, have health insurance, and a roof over your head than the military. While you're trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up, you know, and sometimes a lot of my colleagues went to college right out of high school. They stayed in, they moved back to, to to Riverside in New Jersey, and and that's that was for them. Me, I can't seem to sit still. I have traveled. I have you know worked in many different locations, done different jobs, and continue to to move up um, in different roles, and and that's. For me, um, you know, I never went, I didn't go to college right out of high school. And I didn't know if I would have been able to handle it. You know, I think college takes a level of discipline. And when you realize you're investing dollars to go for those credit hours, trust me, you want to study or don't want to be partying and drinking. Oh, yeah.
0: I went to (laughs) college as a customer. That's yeah. my, my mindset by the time I went. Yes.
1: Yes, you're right? paying. It's no, it's no longer
0: like you're getting sent to the principal's office. It's like, no, I'm paying you for an education. Yes, so.
1: yes. And I'm going to make the I'm most of it. One. Yeah. And I'm going to yeah. utilize like the employment services, the resume review. Hey, what other services do you have? You have a library that has like research. Okay. I remember sitting with the librarian to do, for the librarian to teach me really how to do research, doing my research projects. Like I really needed that training, Um, And coming out of high school, I would have never thought, I would have been like, okay, yeah, I got to do some research paper. Okay, Google and and, and you're done. I mean, it wouldn't have been the level of commitment. I think the military gave me that discipline to sit and learn, like to sit and learn. As much as I was motivated for it, I think the military training really helped me buckle down and do it because it was like, you got to do this or you got that (laughs) to go back to and to me, the the better option was being educated because it was my initial goal to to really help me stay focused on that. Military did. The military did.
0: Before I let you go, you are in another transition right now because, you know, the election and the administration, everything. So what's next? We've talked about, you know, three or four different phases of your life where you experienced transition and what's next for you?
1: I don't know. I really don't. You know, my first transition was, um, like I said, from the military to. So my first civilian job was. Hey, Tammy, you have all this great experience, and I told you this yesterday, but you don't have the education, right? I was, wasn't a nurse. I I was a corpsman. I didn't have all the education and training the, on, the bu- on the record, I should say. I had like on-hand training. Now I have the title. I have all the education. Um, I have all the training, I have all the experience over 20 years experience in the healthcare space. And I do have to say this transition has been tough from January to now, I'm still in the job market. Um, and, and it has been tougher than, than what I expected. But I've also seen taking this opportunity to breathe, spend time with my kids, and I'm still out, out there looking for work. I don't know, I'm trying to just to get back into the, the healthcare space and see um, how I could be an ad, continue to be an advocate for for veterans or helping other you know corporate entities understand how to work closely with vA so there are other opportunities that I'm seeking, but for me um it's just not about getting a job it's getting a job where I feel a sense of purpose that I'm you know working for the greater good of the, of our veterans um, or military families and, and their caregivers so it's just not. Jumping into a role um, and taking what comes first—it's finding that that role that really allows me to bring my experience, expertise, leadership, and my skill set to, to to improving care and services for all veterans and their families too. So, I don't know what's next, but I'm motivated and, and I'm excited to see um, as I'm exploring opportunities what what may come of it and. I do have to say all of the different transitions I've had through my career, none of it has prepared me for this because, you know, it's just not transitioning from one job to finding another job. Um, There's also, it's Washington. So it's a very politically charged environment that we're in also. And I wasn't, my title wasn't the most liked title. I was an assistant secretary for accountability. Um, And unless you take the time to know what my stance was in that or Who I am as a person and why I was why I took that role. You're just going to see, hey, she was an assistant secretary or an appointee under a particular president that I didn't like, and and if that is your approach to who I am or um, as a person, then you know maybe it's not best that we I am working for you or or for one particular entity. But those are things that happens, and and it's okay. It's part of the process, um, and it's taught me. Very much so that when you get into these political roles, I often wondered, how come everyday Americans just don't do this and and it's taught me one thing for sure as I reflect on the past, what's happened and and being in this role that not every family can afford, and I sure can't I'm just like every other American, I have to you know take care of my family, but no one wants to risk losing their job and take on the challenge of having to find another job in a politi- highly charged political environment. Yeah, And for everyday Americans, that decision is tough. For me, it was a tough decision for my family. But do I regret it now? I don't. It was worth it. It was worth it to see how Washington works. It was worth it to bring transparency and show um, the American people that they need to start paying attention and being involved in, in the process with, with elected officials when, when they vote, you know, listen to the, their concerns, listen to the solutions um, and hold them accountable with your vote. Um, hold politicians accountable with your vote. Um, those things are critical. So I understand why a lot of people don't get into the political realm. Because if your family is your priority and your income, and it is for me, it is a priority, but also my husband and I being vote veterans this was a risk taking a job that's a political job and it's okay to go through that process and this transition now. And I accept that. So yeah. that's why it's interesting. I don't know what's next, but I'm still exploring many options.
0: I'm sure that uh, it's worth waiting for the right thing. And it's, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, I, this is, uh, we've gone pretty long for this episode, but it's cause, you know, you got such an incredible story and I know that, our listeners are probably gonna we're gonna get some feedback like oh my god can we get more people like her there's probably not many people like you (laughs) they don't just come you know like you can't go pick them up um yeah but i've had a uh you know i've had a great time uh well ben dropped due to production issues but we've had a great time talking to you today Tammy, and hopefully we can reconnect in the future or get an update uh, from you or invite you back for like a bonus episode or a round table or something.
1: I would love to do that. You know, using these platforms as an opportunity to inform, motivate, or sometimes some, some people are just looking for that pick me up of like, hey, if she can do it, I can do it. And hopefully that's that, that happens, and someone can hear my story and, and relate to it and, and, you know, believing in yourself and that you're the creator of your destiny. Um, you get to define your successes. It's critical and it's key. Everyone has their time and their moment, um, and it, it will come. It, it, but it takes a lot of hard work, diligence, and discipline. That's what the military taught us, right, Matt? You know that yeah. very well, yeah. that discipline. Yeah. Um, So hopefully it motivates someone will help someone or could just be entertaining. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Listening to all our, our audio talk about this stuff dropping.
0: (laughs) For sure. Entertaining. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on. We'll probably, you know, cut it here and we'll upload, but uh, yeah, I had a great time.
1: Okay, thanks, Matt, so much for having me and give me my thanks Uh, and definitely would love to keep in touch and and stay connected for sure.
0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Tammy in D.C. and around the country, caring for others and building systems to help with our well-being. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow and join us next time on Thank You Now What.